story of Good Friday begins in Genesis chapter 3. Shortly after God had given to Adam and Eve all of his creation, after he had given them instructions to love, to care for, to cultivate his creation, the serpent came to Eve in an attempt to manipulate, an attempt to coerce. And he did so in a really unique way. He did so by calling into question the nature of God himself and the nature of their relationship. In Genesis chapter three, verses one through six, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is such a unique moment. It it is honestly a remarkable, almost unbelievable moment, a kind of moment you would love to be there just to see exactly how the serpent approached Eve and began to talk. And when the serpent talked, was she surprised? Was that the kind of thing that happened all the time in the garden? This is so unique and, and seems so foreign that perhaps it could be paraphrased, this interaction could be paraphrased this way. God is trying to keep you down, Eve, the serpent says. He's holding you back. You could be so much more. The only thing standing between you and God is God himself. He wants the power, the glory, the autonomy, all to himself. He knows things that he isn't telling you about. There's a whole world out there that he's blinded you to. A world of choice and independence and self-direction. Why would you want to obey when you could demand obedience? Why would you want to submit when you could expect submission? Why live this sheltered life when you could experience everything I could show you? How can you even know what you like if you don't experience everything at least once? You think about God all the time. You worship him, obey, submit, and walk with him. But what about you, Eve? Have you ever thought about yourself? What does Eve need? Have you ever considered what you want out of life? Think of who you could be if you just pursued your passions, your desires? I see something in you, Eve. Something God doesn't see, or if he does, he doesn't want you to see it. He's afraid of you. Afraid that you could be as great as he is. And he'd have to share his glory and wisdom with you. Is this the life you want? A life of submission and obedience, of mandates and restrictions? Don't you want to be free? 
don't you want to really live? The path to life is the one where you pursue your greatest possibilities. Dream, hope, pursue, aspire to be your greatest self. God is holding you back, Eve. Don't let him. Be you. Assert your power. Declare your liberation. Eat the fruit and live. That's the promise of the serpent. It's the promise of sin. Pursue yourself with reckless abandon and you will live. Anything less is oppressive. Restriction is death. Limitation is death. The gods of our age are freedom without responsibility and expression without condemnation. Every advertisement beckons you to this truth, promising that its product is the only thing standing between you and your truest self. I was walking down the street just the other day and saw a bank, a bank that promised that they could help you find the new you. I'm not sure if that was a checking or a savings. We might call this idea selfness. Selfness, the unending pursuit of the satisfaction of the self. And it's this that caused the fall. The pursuit of self as the path to life is the promise of the serpent, but it is a lie. Selfness turns you in on yourself in a way that shuts you off from the rest of the world. Slowly, you begin to care less and less and less about the needs of those around you. Every person becomes a means to your end, a commodity of pleasure to use as you will. Every situation is a reflection of your position, your status, or your power. Every word out of your mouth becomes increasingly calculated to reflect your projected image. Every thought is about you. You see the world only through the lens of how it affects you. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a reason that selfness leads to death, and it's because you were meant for something else. You were created for what we'll call otherness. Selfness turns in on itself, and you were created for otherness. We, he created us to be interdependent. My flourishing is deeply dependent on your love for me, and vice versa. God's world was created to be a complex and beautiful web of desperately dependent, flourishing otherness. Otherness is the path to life. Selfness is the swift road to insufferable narcissism, isolation, and eventually death. The fall was not simply the introduction of bad behavior. It was the descent of humanity into itself. Selfness is hell. An eternity of being exponentially more obsessed with yourself is a prison from which there is no escape. And it's all of this that sets the context for Good Friday. Instead of reading through a, a gospel account of the cross and the moments leading up to it, I, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, if you would. 
written hundreds of years before Jesus ever saw the cross, Isaiah prophesies about the moment, describes it in a way that gives us maybe a little bit of a peek into God's intention that why God chose the path of the cross to be the redemptive work. We'll start in verse three. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, I have to ask, you know, what I know of God and what I've seen in his work in the, in the Old Testament, certainly leading up to uh, Christ's death, it, it would make me think that his act of deliverance would be something like the ark or something like the exodus. That maybe God would send some ultimately good Davidic king setting to rights all of the serpent's wrongs, bringing justice to the oppressed, healing to the sick, and joy to the brokenhearted. Of course, he did do those things. But none of those great acts, none of those miracles, and none of those sermons was ultimately able to roll back death itself. None of those things, none of the sermons, none of the Sermon on the Mount, none of the miracles, none of the things that Jesus said or did prior to the cross was fully able to eradicate the world of sin and death and turn back the tide of Satan. Only his death did that. Instead of simply overwhelming death with an equal but oppositely constructive act of life, God sent Jesus to die. He went into the very thing that Satan thought would destroy God's creation. But he went to death, Jesus went to death, not as a result of selfishness, 
or for vain glory like Eve and Adam, but by taking on the essential Christian virtue of otherness. By taking on otherness and taking it with him into the deepest pit of death, he destroyed death itself and made it into a tool of life. How does that make sense? Satan brought death into the world in order to destroy the life God created. He had hoped that introducing sin would create a fall from which humanity would never recover. The death of creation was his great ambition, but the death of God had to have been far more than he could have ever hoped for. You see, Satan thought that death was an ultimate power. He thought that death could destroy down to the marrow of God's creation. He thought that death alone had the power to undo God's life. But he was wrong. On the cross, perhaps at the very moment that Satan thought he had won a great victory, God said, Satan, do you think that death can actually ruin the life I've created? Do you think death is irrevocable? Do you think that the stain of sin is permanent? Do you think it can overcome me, defeat me, cause me to abandon my creation? Wait, Satan, do you think death is yours? If the heart of sin is selfness and selfness leads to death, then a death motivated by unwavering otherness undoes the very thing that created death in the first place. Jesus went to the deepest and darkest parts of selfness, grabbed death by the neck, and turned it into an agent of life. Jesus turned Satan's weapon on him. So that now, for us, Even though we are surrounded by death and it haunts us at every turn, it is the God-blazed path to life. We don't find life simply by pursuing the good, but also by dying. First in baptism and then every day dying to ourselves, dying to the very thing that brought death in the first place. Dying to that desire to rule over God, to be like God, dying to control and glory and worship. It's only by that death that we are fully freed for life. And the deeper we die, the more we live. This is true because Jesus went as deeply into death as possible and purchased the fullness of life so that each and every step we take into death is actually a step towards life. This is the miracle of Good Friday. Not just that God would die for his broken and sinful people who had lived in rebellion. I mean, that's miracle enough. But the true miracle of Good Friday is that God turned death into a tool for life. Not just once, but it became the pattern of life for the early church. And it is our pattern for life even today. Paul and Peter and Jesus himself taught that To find real life, we must pursue death. Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus himself in Mark 8 says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's been there all the time. The path to life is shaped like a cross. Many, many years later and far, far less divinely inspired, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship said this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. The pattern of the Christian life is the one laid out on the cross. The cross is our pattern. It's our shape. It doesn't simply represent a sacrifice made on a day so long ago, but the ongoing shape of our faith. The way of the cross is an invitation into life, not just a descent into death. Dying to selfness kills sin and death and introduces us to new life because it declares the truth that the serpent obscured in the garden. The truth that the greatest life that we could ever know is the self-denying, sin-denying, death-denying, God-affirming, life-affirming, joy-affirming life with God. So tonight, we choose to die. And tonight, we choose to live. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a hard and at times confounding truth that the path to true life is the path of death, death of self, death of ambition, death of grasping, death of striving, death of looking to others for identity, death of looking to uh, activities for our value, the death of self each and every day, taking up our cross and living that cross-shaped life a life of deep vulnerability, a, a life of deep humility, that this is the path that you have laid before your people. And it is the path to life because you, on the day we remember tonight, went as deep and far 
into death as anyone could ever dare. And at that deepest point, that darkest moment where you were in the clutches of all of humanity's selfness, you were victorious. And you turned that very thing. You demonstrated, as Lewis calls it, that deeper magic. That there is a truer truth. That when someone motivated by true otherness would go to the depths of death, that it can be overcome. You blazed that path for us that we might walk in it each and every day of our lives. So God, my prayer for us tonight is that we would walk the path of death very intentionally. That we would remember you in communion, that we would walk the stations of the cross, that we would remember what you did and that it would be a pattern, a shape for our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.